On a hill in Thailand, you can apparently pay as a tourist to set some little birds free. Tourists pay 20 baht, about a dollar, to go to the edge of the escarpment, open up the cage and feel the joy of setting the birds free, watching them fly away. But as the author that I read lined up and waited their turn, they noticed how so many of the birds were reluctant to leave. The tourists had to shake and tap the cages to get the birds out. And when the tourist turned and went to the next adventure, he watched and saw the birds in the distance also turn and make a long arc behind some trees where the empty cages were also taken only to return full of birds. The birds were trained. They knew no other life than that in the cage. They came back. The locals had a wonderful money-making scheme from these rich Westerners and good on them. And the tourists got that moment of joy. In today's story, God had freed the bird of Israel. Last week, we experienced the joy of that. This week, the birds want to fly back to their cage. And we begin to see what God must do to train Israel for freedom. It's only a month since the events of the Red Sea. The Israelites have marched into the desert of sin. Now the word sin here is not sin iniquity. It's actually a foreign word for moon. This area of land was named after a moon god of the foreigners. Um, I don't know why, maybe it was the way that the moon radiated the, uh, radiated the desert, or perhaps the desert had that barren moonscape look, although I'm not sure how they knew without a, a telescope. Despite still having the cloud of God's presence there and the memories of God's mir- miracles in Egypt echoing in their minds... What is human nature to do? It's to doubt, to fear, and to grumble. So often we're afraid of change, of difference. And we have this funny habit of remembering things a little differently to what they were like. Remember the good old days? A lot of old people tell me, well, they actually weren't that good. And Fritz told us a few weeks ago that this story is about remembering, but remembering correctly. Suddenly, as they get out into the desert, slavery doesn't seem that bad. And in a a masterstroke of irony, they sort of say, oh, you've brought us out into the desert to die. We had all this food and all this meat in Israel. And it sounds a bit like the four, four Yorkshiremen, doesn't it? Oh, when we were young, we lived in a hole in the ground. Oh, yes, we had to get up at 5 a.m., four hours before we went to bed. We had to lick the road clean. Then we had to pay a tuppence for the privilege to go walk in the mines. Oh, we had nothing. Oh, yes, but we were happy. Oh, we were happy because we had nothing. But you tell that to the youth of today and they won't believe you. No, no, they won't believe you. 
It's easy to laugh or get angry at the Israelites. I mean, what's wrong with these guys? And believe me, they're grumbling. It's frustrating. And you'll get frustrated if you read about it. But like the prisoners in Shawshank Redemption or or the birds in these cages, the people were institutionalized. The rigid brutality of their prison felt safer than the apparent chaos of freedom. Oh, the rigid brutality of prison feels safer than the apparent chaos of freedom. That's, that's human nature. That's law and grace. Sin that keeps us prisoner and grace that is scary freedom. Why do women in domestic violence take three, even four goes to leave their torment? We had a woman stay with us this week who we were helping to escape her terrible situation. And it was her fourth attempt to get out. And after talking with her, I can see why. She had no ID, no bank account, no had never paid a bill or had to do a budget. She'd never had a job. She had been kept a virtual prisoner in her home while her husband acted like Pharaoh, drinking drugs and affairs. At first, it's it's alluring to be so smothered with love. Oh, you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay bills. You don't have to go out. But soon you come to realize you're actually being caged and controlled and smothered. On this lady's way to a safe house, Becky got a call because she was in a panic because her taxi hadn't turned up. She had so little experience doing anything that everything was overwhelming. So when something seemed to go wrong, a a taxi being late, well, the cage seemed like a much safer place than freedom. As Becky was talking to her, taxi arrived. Things were going to be okay. It's okay. I'm learning not to get so angry at the grumblers. The grumbling doesn't come from stubbornness or rebellion or stupidity or arrogance or pig-headedness, even though it sometimes feels like that. But rather, it comes from fear, from doubt, from fragility, from insecurity, facing the unknown. And sometimes I've got to admit, I'm one of the grumblers. If I want people to have grace to me, maybe I need to have it on them. And in this story, God doesn't get angry at Israel for grumbling yet. Aaron and Moses get frustrated, but God actually shows compassion. He says, They're not grumbling at you, Moses and Aaron. They're grumbling at me. I have heard their grumbling, their fears, and I will bring them bread. 
So Moses and Aaron say to the people, you're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Take a moment to think about that. It's a very sobering thought. We might aim our grumbling at synod or assembly or the local minister, maybe our our council or politicians or even our boss, and maybe sometimes they deserve it, but sometimes are we really grumbling against the Lord, against what God is doing, against what God is wanting to do for us, and God's tapping on our cage and he's shaking our cage and we're going, no, no, don't let me out. And then God brings this elaborate miracle of manna, the bread from heaven. And this is God training them for freedom. Just like the lady who stayed with us, we had to begin to train her for freedom. Very simple things, a healthy routine, just eating and sleeping at the right time were where we began. And after two days her son said to her mum, mum, can we stay here forever? It's amazing how those little things make a difference. And so what God does with this bread, it's profoundly simple, but profoundly powerful. God gives them just bread, a basic of life, something they have to eat every day. But he gives it to them in a way that will train them. And he says, I will test them. I will train them to see if they will follow my instructions. I will test them. I will train them so that they trust me. Six days, gather bread. Not too little, not too much. And on the sixth day, gather twice as much because it's going to be your Sabbath. Or the seventh day is your seventh your Sabbath, your Saturday. And on that day, you can have the day off. And then you're going to live that pattern for 40 years, getting up every morning, gathering bread for six days, and on the seventh, having a lie-in. 40 years of doing that. There is so much going on in this little act that it's amazing. Firstly, I'm not sure if you realize, but this is the initiation the institution of the Sabbath. We imagine that these guys have been Sabbath keepers, you know, forever. Because in Genesis, it says on the seventh day, God made the Sabbath and he made it holy, um, rest on that day. But if you actually read the book of Genesis, the Sabbath is never mentioned. There is never given any instructions on how to follow it. This is the first time the Sabbath is mentioned. And you wonder why, but remember we talked last week about resetting your clock, resetting the calendar, that this is to be your first month, and now we're in the second month, the 15th day. Because this was Israel's creation. And what does God do at the end of creation? He rests. The first thing God gives Israel after their creation is rest. They're a new creation and creation 
needs recreation, recreation each week. We know this now. There's so much research about, as humans, how we need to rest, how we need a break, how we need Sabbaths, that um, you're, you're silly if you think that the Sabbath is a waste and resting is a waste. Um, I know um, Miriam will tell you this. One of the first things they do if you go in and you're feeling stressed is say, sleep, <laughs> get get sleep, have a rest, have a break. You've got to get, get yourself back um, your body back in whack before you can get your mind back in whack. You need time to create, to recreate emotionally, physically, spiritually, community, communally. Oh, that our community would rest again. What would that do for our mental health? What would it do for community? What would it do for us if we said, you know what, we're going to rest But also consider what else is going on in this story. God is setting up healthy work practices, a healthy work week. Gather enough dough. Isn't that what we call bread? Gather enough dough every day, not too much, not too little. And if you work long hours, it's not going to matter because it's all going to spoil. Gather enough every day, not too little, not too much. And look after yourself and rest on the seventh day. And this is especially profound when you consider what they had previously been. They'd been slaves. How hard do slaves work? And so God is giving them this, I don't know if it's 40 hours, but it's like a 40-hour week. This is good news for slaves. Work is profound. Work is valuable. You need to work. Not too hard. And don't do it to get ahead of your neighbor because that's just going to cause maggots and rot. Each one gathered as much as they needed and make sure you rest. This is industrial relations 4,000 years ago. The first thing that God sets up for people who were slaves is this healthy work practice, this day of rest. And then he gets them to practice it and practice it and practice it. I've been doing this graduate certificate in leadership um, this past two years. I'm just about to do my last two days. And we've read this book, Switch, How to Change, Transitioning, How to Make People Change. And everything you read in this book is in this manner in the desert. God did it 4,000 years ago. If you want people to change, simplify it, give them something physical um, and make them do it. Practice, 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 and that will change a community. Wow. Didn't need to read that book. Duh. No wonder the Jews take the Sabbath so seriously. God etched it into their soul. And this is just the first thing he begins to train them for freedom. Do you remember this thing? You seen this thing? Anyone? Anyone? Are you sick of it yet? How'd we do? Why have we been hammering this into you, getting you to to think about it and practice it? Because God is taking us to a new place of freedom and ministry for the trapped in our community who need a gentle tapping or some sort of shaking to say, be free, be free. 
And we've got to learn, we've got to have it etched into our souls. How do we bring people to that? How do we do that? How is our welcome? Do people get a warm welcome? At the trivia night last night, how was the welcome that our church gave to two-thirds of the crowd who weren't from our church? And what sort of experience did they walk away after that experience, uh, that event? Did they walk away going, oh, man, I'm not going to go back to that church? Or, wow, that church, they, they mean something. And did people walk away thinking, that's a community I could go back to. That's a community that I could belong to. That's a community I'm going to talk up. How did we do? We we raised over five thousand dollars last night for the the school in Africa, um, which is just fantastic. But but what I thought was just as profound was we had two thirds of the crowd there were from the community, thanks to Joseph and Pam and their work, and um, and there was just such a positive vibe on on the night. We've got to have that etched into our body, that we're welcoming people, giving them an experience of God, letting them know they belong, then starting to say, well, come and believe the great news about a God who loves us and become the people of God. And why do we do that? Someone did it for us. Someone did it for us. And the people out there are children of God too. When you step back from the story, you also realize something else. You realize that this was God's plan all along. It was no mistake that they ended up in the desert with no food in the cupboard. It was God's intention to bring the miracle of manna. Their physical lack exposed their spiritual need and God's willing provision. Their physical lack exposed their spiritual need and what God wanted to do for them. Not only that, in that instance, but God knew stepping back even further, that one day he was going to send his son to feed 5,000 plus people in the desert, in the, the wilderness with bread. And that that son would proclaim that I am the bread, the manna of life. And just as our ancestors needed bread to survive the desert of sin, so you need me in your life daily, and twice on Sunday to survive in this world of sin. I am God's willing provision, bread broken for you. So this isn't just Israel's story in time past. This isn't just the hub story. This is your story. What is your lack Right now, what is the thing in your life that's missing? What need is God bringing to light by the circumstances of your life that you maybe you're grumbling about them? Maybe you're just praying, God, 
Why is this happening? What's happening? What lack has God brought into your life to show the spiritual need that he's saying, I am willing to provide. I'm willing to meet that need if you face me, if you come to me, if you gather every morning the bread. I'm willing to feel that need. Or what cage are you stuck in? What sin has you trapped? What legalism has bound you? What's the thing that brings you comfort but ironically stops you going forward? Isn't that a terrible thing about human human beings? The things that make us comfortable also just slowly make us fat and lazy and kill us. Is it just the way things currently were? Is it a a job you're in, a relationship you're in? Or is it that you want a church to stay in the 1960s or even the 2000s? What's the cage that has you? God wants to provide. God wants to set you free. God wants to help you learn to trust him, to give you a daily routine where you feed on him in his word and prayer, and you serve, and you give those little daily, everyday simple things that will train you for freedom. Let's pray. Lord God, what a, what a profound, wonderful journey and story you're taking Israel on, You're taking us on as a church community. But you call us to as individuals as well. That as we walk into the desert places, the dry places, we think that's evidence there is no God. Yet strangely, that's exactly where you draw us so that we find you, God. When suddenly our our need is exposed when we don't have everything anymore. The fragility of our own souls is exposed. Our desperate need for you. Lord, even if we come to you grumbling, I pray that we come to you. But it's so much better if we come to you on our knees in prayer, praying and saying, Lord God, I don't get this. This is too hard. Why is this happening? If we come to you and say, Lord God, be my provision. This scripture promises, this scripture tells us that you'll be there. That you'll give us not miraculous signs that get rid of all our needs, but a daily routine that sustains us for 40 years. A daily routine of feeding on you, of coming together for a Sabbath once a week, of being part of your called community. 
Lord, I pray for each individual here because I, I don't know everyone's story. I pray that they can name their need to you. And Lord, I pray that you will move in their hearts now, that they will know that you are there with them, that you are going to be part of the solution. I say part because part of the solution is what we do, that we need to gather the manna, that we need to rest for the Sabbath. Lord, touch us today. By your spirit, we pray. Amen.